Back in 1910, Dr. Ernest Codman of Boston was the first to point out the significant deficiency of hospital records and to link those deficiencies to a lot of issues with patient safety and quality of care. He made his report at the Clinical Congress of Surgeons in North America in 1912, saying that adequate records were essential to study the outcomes of care. Although his reports were really, really not initially received with enthusiasm, by 1913, the American College of Surgeons appointed Codman to chair a committee on hospital standardization and to establish the college's standardization program. Now, this effort grew, and by 1917, over 300 fellows from this committee on standards met to discuss hospital standardization. And toward the end of that year, they finally had agreement and an official hospital standardization program was established. In March of 2018, the report of field trials using those standards created quite a stir because they found that in North America of 692 hospitals that had more than 100 beds, only 89 met the standards. Although the College of Surgeons made that number public, the uproar caused them to have to burn the list of hospitals in the furnace of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City in order to keep the details from the press. It was really, really hot stuff, excuse the pun. Some <laughs> of the major hospitals in North America were actually on the list of deficient hospitals. Later, those standards were boiled down to only five critical standards, which collectively were called the minimum standards. One of the Mayo brothers was on the Board of Regents who approved those minimum standards. Now, things continued to develop, and by 1951, a lot of the professional organizations in the U.S. and Canada worked to actually create the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals as an independent nonprofit organization. Most of the people on this podcast know that accreditation is an important component of ensuring hospital care to be safe and well-run. At this point, the Joint Commission accredits more than 5,000 hospitals. The program has a lot more than five provisions these days. There are hundreds of standards. The big question, how do organizations keep pace and ensure they are following best practices? Welcome to Key into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast focused on healthcare quality, experience, and affordability trends and solutions. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Tim Morgenthaler. I'm a professor of medicine here at Mayo Clinic and the vice chair of Mayo Clinic Quality and Affordability. Co-hosting today's conversation is Sherry Nemec. Sherry? Hello, everyone. I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. You know, that's a really interesting story. I, I really hadn't thought about the idea of standards going back more than 100 years. And then, of course, all the hoopla <laughs> that went along with that. Oh, yeah, it was very, very controversial. Yeah. This guy, Dr. Codman, you know, when he first started, like, checking outcomes of surgeons, the surgeons did not like it, okay? And then when this grew into a, to an organization and a group of standards and it was really yeah. kind of major medical news. But anyway, you know, the question remains, this has become a lot more complex and a lot more important. So how are people to keep abreast of all the changes? Mm -hmm. Today, our guest is Melanie Ryan. Melanie is a director of accreditation and certification at Mayo Clinic. She holds a JD from the University of Wisconsin Law School and has more than 10 years of experience in regulatory affairs. Now, Ms. Ryan oversees the accreditation and regulatory readiness program across 19 Mayo Clinic sites, including 44 accreditations by the Joint Commission for Hospital, Ambulatory, Critical Access Hospitals, Behavioral Health, and Home Care. So as you can see, it has grown a lot. 
Ms. Ryan is also the chair of the Joint Commission Health System Corporate Liaison Advisory Board. So we are really fortunate to have her here today. And Melanie, you know, welcome. Could you just tell us a little bit about when you first joined Mayo Clinic and what your background was? And we'll learn more about what you've been doing, but start there. Sure, absolutely. I joined Mayo Clinic almost 19 years ago as an outreach program coordinator for Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Before that, I had worked for Thomson Reuters, which is a large legal publishing firm specifically for Westlaw. And before that, I was in law school. So I worked uh, for Mayo Clinic Laboratories for about two and a half years. And then I worked for another two and a half years for Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, specifically supporting our allied health education programs. And then I saw this posting for accreditation manager, and I've been in multiple roles in accreditation since 2010. Wow. I mean, and we're so lucky to have you here. I think when a lot of people think of accreditation, they kind of see people with clipboards roaming the hallways of hospitals. (laughs) You've taught me that this is a way bigger concept. Could you just share with us your views about the role of accreditation in healthcare quality and how Mayo manages the accreditation process? Sure, absolutely. You know, I think we've really worked to change hard the mindset about accreditation, particularly as its relationship to healthcare over the years, both at Mayo Clinic and also elevating the profession nationally. Accreditation itself exists in a number of different contexts, from education to manufacturing, and really it's focused around providing an external assessment and evaluation of quality. Related to healthcare, accreditation really provides organizations with a consistent framework to achieve the delivery of safe, high-quality care in a safe environment. Accreditation really focuses around being that external assessment looking at the level of performance in relationship to those established standards. And they have grown in the hospital program from five to over 1,500 standards in the hospital manual today. That's incredible. So (laughs) I was trying to guess on the number of standards. I know I've seen a lot of them. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of like um, underwriters laboratory was, you know, a couple decades ago. I mean, you'd go buy an appliance and you'd look for that UL symbol that says, okay, some external agency has checked this out and it's not going to blow up in my kitchen. Yes, exactly, which makes me feel better about my Instant Pot, um, but should also make (laughs) patients feel better about the surgery that they're about to receive. And one of the things about accreditation is that I always sort of consider our role within the organization as kind of like an octopus because accreditation just has tentacles that stretch out across the organization and literally touch almost every single process within a healthcare business. Everything from infection prevention and control to medication management, the care delivered at the bedside to the safety and structure of the facilities in which we provide that care. So it sort of covers the gamut and um, it allows us in accreditation to have a really wide angle lens to appreciate some of our opportunities that we may have in terms of the delivery of the care, the safety of the facility, and really where the risks may be, where we could continue to enhance the patient's safety and enhance the patient experience. You know, Melanie, I realize it's very simplistic, this kind of image of people with clipboards, but you know, it, it does portray, I think, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago that people would say, oh, the Joint Commission may be coming and then they'd get ready. But with mm-hmm. 1,500 plus different standards, I know you've really promoted continuous readiness. Tell us more about that. Yeah. 
Absolutely. There's a lot of logistics that go into preparing for a successful joint commission accreditation visit, a successful triennial survey. That's really what my team focuses on as we're preparing for survey. We have a very distinct 12-month planning process. I liken it to planning a wedding because there's a lot of different pieces and parts to make that survey run successfully. But that's not accreditation. That's survey prep. Accreditation itself, we focus on continuous accreditation readiness so that really it's invisible to the patients and invisible to the staff. But we've embedded within our policies and procedures and protocols across Mayo Clinic what staff need to do to execute on their job responsibilities. And by doing so, they're compliant because we're evaluating everything behind the scenes to ensure that our informed consent process is up to standards, that we have the appropriate notification of our patient rights and all of these different things that are really just people's jobs responsibilities. It's built off of an underlying framework of accreditation requirements. You said it was like an octopus, but I think eight is not enough. I mean, maybe you could just share with with our listeners, how does your program at Mayo actually manage that process? I mean, how do you make sure that someone from accreditation has oversight of what are the new patient safety procedures, protocols, policies, the pharmacy protocols? It's everything that's going on. How do you do that? Well, it's 100% a team effort. I think number one, We really rely on our leadership as our clinical governance to have 100% accountability for successful accreditation. And my team is really responsible for ensuring that. But it's not just my team. We have a wide ranging net and group of subject matter experts across each site, across each clinical practice who have expertise in doing the jobs that are related to those standards. So experts in pharmacy and experts in human resources and experts in life safety and building code, experts in nursing. And those individuals who we call our accreditation chapter leaders, there's about 350 of them across the organization, and they work in partnership with our site-based teams to ensure we're monitoring our overarching compliance. In order to do that, we have a number of different processes across that triennial cycle. So we do perform what's called a focused standards assessment. That's a self-assessment of the organization at the site level of their compliance with all of the standards that are associated with that program. So maybe the hospital program or the critical access hospital program, whichever accreditation they hold. So that happens once a year until we're in a survey year. And that allows us to identify risk, not only at the site-based level, but at the regional level or at the enterprise level, the system level for Mayo Clinic. And then we're able to escalate those risks to the clinical practice. And then we have the data that says, hey, we've scored ourselves as non-compliant at five of 19 sites with this particular standard. So that allows us to really effectively create that the sort of eyes and ears out in the practice to understand where the risks may be. In terms of keeping up with standards, we utilize that same infrastructure and that same network. So we're very much obviously in tune with the changes from a CMS perspective, as well as a joint commission and uh, any of the other accrediting bodies that we may be connected with. And we absorb that information internally to our team and create standardized communications that then go out. Melanie, I'm going to just pause for a second and reflect again. I kind of have memory of when you first came into this role. And back then, we were 23 hospitals, and we're still 19 hospitals, Mm -hmm. as, you know, has already been pointed out. I mean, some of those are very large and well-supported. 
right. you know, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Jacksonville, Eau Claire, and so forth. And some of those are critical access hospitals. A big, huge contribution that you've had is to create the program that serves all of those facilities. How are you doing that? Yeah, so that's a great question because it is very different, you know, in terms of level of support and resources, depending on which type of facility you're talking about. But what we wanted to do as we standardized our infrastructure for Mayo Clinic accreditation was create a group of standard operating procedures, templates, tools, guidance documents, and education and communication materials that could be standardized to the point of then harmonization. So our sites that may be smaller critical access hospitals with an average daily census of two are still using the same infrastructure that we've created for successful accreditation, mm-hmm. but it might be you know that they can customize that template so that it works for their particular program. So we've really worked our framework around a scope of service that focuses on four elements compliance activities, so the obvious sort of risk mitigation and identification of issues and managing those annual self-assessments and tracers and that type of opportunity. Survey management as the second element, self-explanatory. Standards interpretation as the third, and education and communication. So all of our work ties back to that scope of service. So Melanie, you've got just an incredibly robust program and framework in place today for accreditation and and all the components of that. But if you would like rewind back to when you first started, who did you involve? What were some of those first things that you recognized that you needed to do? Well, I think the first thing that we really started to do when we began to kind of connect across the organization, because the accreditation activity was very disparate at the time, was get everybody to a level of comfort and trust with transparency around their accreditation activities. That was the most important piece as we were looking for it. And it wasn't, it was at all levels of leadership. It wasn't just the staff that were working in accreditation, but it was the leaders of the ops managers. Accreditation results are very personal. It's kind of like a report card on how well you're doing. And you don't necessarily want to share that report card with everybody. So we really got to a point where you know, we tried to create that level of trust to encourage the level of transparency with the recognition that if we understand how each site is managing these activities, we have the opportunity to flesh out and define best practices that would help support everybody. And so instead of everyone needing to recreate the wheel, we were able to say, okay, we need a continuous accreditation readiness calendar. And then we pulled together the group that would create that with the mindset of representing each of their sites so that everyone had their voice at the table. So that way we don't need the furnace in the basement of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We we can actually share across our organization. Yeah, and there's certain restrictions from an accreditation perspective on what we can burn. Right, right, Um, right. And we have to hold on to our reports for a certain number of years. Boy, that's a lot of work. I mean, you just talked about trust building. You're talking about administrative acumen and organization. What were some of the big challenges and kind of interdependencies that you came up against or still come up against? Sure, absolutely. Well, I think one of the interdependencies that's really important and was both a challenge and an incredible benefit to our team is that we sit within quality at Mayo Clinic. This is a quality-based activity. It's tied directly to patient safety, and we have direct interaction with the clinical practice. That is unique to a certain extent amongst the other 
teams that manage regulatory activities for Mayo. So in addition to accreditation, we also partner very closely with our compliance colleagues, our legal colleagues, our colleagues in risk management, and our colleagues in government relations. Framing out that scope of service initially was really important because as we became an enterprise shared service and a system-based team, there were some complexities about who was doing what in terms of regulatory compliance. So we tried to flesh it out as best as possible. And that's really now morphed to where we now have a regulatory review team that brings together individuals from each of those groups, because there are many times when we are collaboratively answering a question from our different perspectives. So navigating some of that was initially very challenging, but I think has ended up being actually a tremendous benefit to the organization because you work through it and then get to the other side where we're all collaborating together to get an even better answer to our leaders. Yeah, kind of um, chaos to clarity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine you've had plenty of surprises along the way in your journey. Any you want to highlight or share? Well, it's always a surprise and accreditation because any day you walk into the office and your day might look very different if a state agency surveyor or CMS survey or a joint commission complaint comes in. There's nothing about this particular job that is necessarily predictable. But the interesting thing is that the individuals that are drawn to accreditation are also people that tend to be highly organized and and sort of on the type A side of the spectrum. They like to know what's going on. They like to have a framework. So what we've done for a very reactive activity is try to put in place as proactive a framework as possible to minimize the surprises. But they happen all the time because a patient safety event may happen or a survey might show up. And so we have to have sort of a a level of familiarity with that. But when I first took the job, I sort of said to myself, oh, well, every three years, I'm going to be really busy at this one week of time. That is <laughs> you, not you the case. You learn that one pretty quickly, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah every and three of course, days, I'm going to, yeah. yeah actually... and, and not only is it kind of a surprise visit every three years, but then you've got 19 plus organizations and 44 right. programs. And so that Correct. can really, you can Always. have some some bunching up of things. and Yeah, uh, we did uh, run some statistics actually for 2019. The, the survey cadence has been off since that point, yes. since COVID. But 2019, if we're looking at it as an average year, we had a survey event every three days at Mayo Clinic. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Wow. So between state agency investigations or complaint investigations or triennial surveys or disease-specific care certifications, if you look at it across the business working days of the year, it was every three days. So, you know, Melanie, the, you know, the expertise required here is apparent, and I don't even know if you can do this, but if you say you were at a dinner conversation and somehow somebody was accreditation um, fanatics, how would you describe the kind of the current organization to somebody who doesn't live inside of Mayo. So how do you organize your accreditation activities? Well, I think the most important thing about accreditation is that it truly is a site-specific activity. So we have an enterprise team and we have individuals that are all operating under the same set of rules and requirements and standard operating procedures to provide the best level of service to each individual site, but accreditation is maintained at the site level. And in order to be successful, the team 
has to have the actual physical ability to respond to an on-site investigation. But in order for that to be successful, they have to have the actual knowledge of that organization. They need to be embedded within the leadership infrastructure. They need to know the physical facility. And so as we were pulling this team together, even though we're executing the same way so that each of our campuses gets the same level of service and each of our accreditation programs are managed in a very similar fashion. The key was really having teams that are geographically and site specifically based. I think that's been helpful to tie them in with the leadership at each of those sites where really the accountability lies. I'm kind of envisioning almost like a spoken wheel type of mm-hmm. organization with you at the head of the enterprise. And at Mayo, when we say enterprise, we really mean it's a shared service across all of our organizations. Yep. Are there specific parts of the overall execution that are better managed and supported from the central or the enterprise office. And then you've already spoken to say at sites, they need to deal with their site specific issues, but does it divide up or is it just kind of everybody does everything all the time? Or what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it definitely divides up. Lots of risk assessment. Sites will have individual small related issues that are very specific to the practice that they have there. But what we're doing is constantly tracking the issues organizationally. And when things rise to a high level of interpretation, that will rise to the enterprise level, to my level to review. And anytime we are going to need to engage executive practice leadership at the system level, that's when we'll really bring together a comprehensive risk assessment to bring forward. So for example, suicide risk assessment, it's one of the most top-sided standards in the country. It has been for some time. It obviously has a, a very distinct risk to patient safety. We've identified opportunities to improve in this particular space. And so We've collated the data from each of the sites, recognized the vulnerabilities and weaknesses, where we think improvement might be needed, and then that gets escalated through the enterprise office to the clinical practice. I guess that kind of issue is brought to a more enterprise visibility, then that very likely will result in more resources being available at these other sites to make the improvements needed, right? Absolutely. And that's one of the crucial reasons that we really try to identify things at an enterprise level where we feel there's significant risk and opportunity. It's it's a balance, but we want to ensure that our sites are well supported to implement changes that may be required as a nature of that. You know, Melanie, you, you mentioned earlier about when you were first starting the work that there was a need to have strong connection, collaboration with a number of key partners. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how this work links up with other compliance activities? Like I mentioned, we're very close colleagues with our legal department. They have a regulatory team, so we work very closely with them. We're close colleagues with Revenue Cycle Compliance, who support our conditions of participation, the CMS requirements, because they're related to billing. That's why they're in revenue. Enterprise Risk Management and then government relations. As you can imagine, the regulatory environment is shifting so quickly and so suddenly that we need to really engage often at the legislative level with our partners in government relations to help provide the Mayo perspective on different political agendas, rules, requirements, proposed rules, and things like that. 
that engagement is really important. But our other partners, of course, are all of the subject matter experts, those accreditation chapter leaders who are truly experts in their field mm -hmm. with a depth of knowledge and expertise that far exceeds our understanding of the standards. These are folks that have gone to school to become pharmacists or surgeons or, you know, and so having those individuals engaged with our team is by far the greatest component of success. You just brought up the tempo of change. Everybody in healthcare, you know, has been impacted greatly by COVID. And I know that COVID has really interrupted kind of the standards survey tempo and, and other things. I don't know if I want to join President Biden in saying we're beyond the pandemic, but we are at a different place in the COVID sure. pandemic than we were over the last two years. How are you, you know, how is your group helping to keep employees and hospitals updated and ready for survey? And, you know, how has this been impacting your work? You know, it really has been very challenging, specifically with the early days of the pandemic and the extremely quickly changing rules as we were learning more about transmission, as the CDC was trying to keep up with changing guidance, it really was very difficult from an accreditation perspective to ensure that we were doing what we needed to do to keep our patients and our staff safe. Those rules and requirements continue to change regularly. We've seen everything from, I'm sure everyone's familiar with a very publicized vaccine condition of participation, to really looking deep into our infection control requirements, everything from visitation to our patients in the hospital setting to masking and masking requirements in different settings. So our work, you know, really sort of transitioned at that point to probably the first time that we've ever had an, an incident that's occurred that's required emergency regulatory expertise. So we were, we were embedded within that. And then of course, the Joint Commission and CMS, the survey cadence and tempo definitely changed. We're dealing with a lot of delays of surveys, engagement of our staff and continually keeping them ready is a challenge. But I would agree the pandemic is not over because last time I checked, the public health emergency was just extended one more time. And obviously there's politics involved in all of that, but we're still continuing to constantly evaluate our COVID-related mitigation factors and precautions so that we can ensure that we're compliant, really the base level with the infection control requirements from CMS. So many of us involved in healthcare participated in some level of accreditation surveys or otherwise. I myself have, have had the pleasure of being a chapter leader in the past. So I'm just curious, what are the hot topics right now? What's top of mind for you in this work? Infection control, and national patient safety goals. Those are probably the highest issues that continue to come up. You know, you will see the top five most cited standards from the Joint Commission. The number one is an infection control standard. Number two is reducing the risk for suicide. Three is medication management. And then the remainder of the top five relate to the safety of the physical environment, um, which is really always considered the low-hanging fruit for citation when organizations have a, a Joint Commission survey. But those are the things I think that are truly challenging for most organizations right now. The other thing I would say is that we've seen a proliferation of new standards from the Joint Commission, from CMS, specifically related to workplace violence, to business continuity, and health equity. And those are all new types of topics for accreditation staff and for frontline staff to take on board. So that's definitely posing some challenges right now. 
of those top five and the new standards, what is keeping you up at night? To be honest with you, none of the above. The thing that worries me the most is the staffing crisis that's facing most hospital organizations Mm. right now. Because with limited staffing and with shorter resources, there's opportunity for error. So I think, you know, as we are looking at mitigation strategies and surge plans and all of those things that have come into play, staffing, it really impacts every aspect of patient care, every aspect of our staff's level of burnout, and every aspect of maintaining the facility. So that ties very closely to that broad framework for accreditation. So if anything, it's staffing shortages. Yeah, wow. We're really fortunate at at Mayo Clinic to have, you know, an enterprise office for accreditation and have all this support. And I really give you and your colleagues a lot of credit for the program you've developed. That's why you're a guest here today because of the, you know, fantastic work, both driven by staffing shortages and economics. There are more and more sort of mergers, acquisitions, more examples of some healthcare organization going from one hospital to having three hospitals. I imagine you get contacted from time to time for your recommendations about, okay, how can they build something like what you have? What are your like top three words of advice for those organizations that are trying to do a better job or a more efficient job in this area? It's really interesting because so much of how accreditation functions is really tied to how the organization itself functions. So there is no standard framework out there available in the market to say you should do accreditation this way. There's a lot of tools and resources that are accessible to staff, but there isn't a lot around that governance. And it's partly because everything is so specific to the leadership infrastructure and the framework that each health system has put together. So there are very successful accreditation programs across the country that are completely decentralized. And then we've chosen a more centralized framework that works best for us. It's certainly not necessarily the rule, but the things that when I I speak with teams that are interested in moving towards more of that central model, number one, leadership accountability is the most important component. You need to know who do I go to if we have an issue and how will it be resolved? So creating that leadership accountability, creating that trust and transparency across your team and across your leadership and across each site within the system is absolutely critical because the lessons learned from each of those groups will be important to continue to move your program forward. And then the last piece to it is standard operating procedures. If everybody has the tools and resources that they need in order to respond when that sort of emergency or urgent situation happens, and they don't then need to fall back on, oh, well, I used to do it this way, or I need this, I need that. It needs to just be all laid out right for you so that you can just go. Those are the probably the top three. Wow. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Sherry, do you have any other questions? I don't. I just want to say that I have the opportunity to work with Melanie often, and it is certainly a pleasure. And thank you for joining us today. Great conversation. Oh, my gosh. Well, this has just been great fun, and I appreciate it, and I really enjoy the podcast. So thanks for having me as a guest. Well, well, thank you. So listeners, we have come to the end of our podcast. We're really glad you could join us, and we hope that the information provided is insightful and valuable. This is Mayo Clinic's Key into Quality, which is a podcast aiming to help you take some of those first steps to address important quality challenges in your organization. 
The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations striving to improve. Our goal is to improve quality for patients and populations that we all serve. Please let others in your organization know about this podcast so the information can be spread and share your ideas about this podcast with us so we can continue to serve you and improve our podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.